0: of the month, and that means it's time for Literary Ashland right here on KSKQ. I'm Michael Nealon. And I'm Ed Battistella, And we have a few announcements first. I'm going to start out here. Monday, June 25th, uh, Anna Quinn, the Night Child, and uh, Jennifer Hobb, author of In the Shadow of a Thousand Hills, will be at Bloomsbury Books at 7 p.m. Monday the 25th. And
1: on Thursday, June 28th at 7 p.m., um, Ellie Alexander, author of Death, death, till death do us Tart, a bake shop mystery, which is set in Ashland, at Tort, the small town bakery, bake
0: shop that no
1: one can resist.
0: Okay. Uh, also, uh, just of note, if you happen to be interested in it, the applications for the 2019 Oregon Literary Fellowships are due Monday, July 9th. Current full-time Oregon residents are eligible, and we especially encourage emerging writers to apply. Uh, So this is a great opportunity, and you can find more information on the web at literary-arts.org.
1: Right, and for those of you planning ahead, the Willamette Writers' Conference will be in Portland August 3rd through 5th. Always a good time. You've gone a few times, I think, right? Once. Once? Yeah.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. It is a good time. Well, today our special guest is Dr. Brooke Colley, a professor and author who earned her PhD in Native American Studies at the University of California, Davis. And she's the chair of the Native American Studies program at Southern Oregon University. Um, Her teaching and research interests include um, Native American and First Nations film and new media, federal Indian law and policy, Oregon Tribes and Intertribal Relations, and Community Health and Healing. Welcome, Brooke. Thank you. Thanks for having me here today. Oh, it's great to have you. Yeah, indeed. Well, her recently published book, Power in the Telling, investigates the emergence of the tribal casino economy and focuses on intertribal problem solving in in the casino era. Um, so, congratulations on your book. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about it? Sure.
2: Thanks. Uh, Yeah. So I was actually um, started this project in 2005 when I was a McNair scholar at Southern Oregon University. And it was during a summer research program that I became interested in what's going on with tribal casinos. I come from a a tribe that actually, well, I come from two tribes that are casino um, owning and operating tribes. And I was kind of wanting to learn more about how we had gained those rights uh, to to operate those kinds of um, economic endeavors and, and what it meant for us. Uh, as I started learning more, I became um, really aware of the fact that there were uh, a lot of books out there that were looking at the casino economy and how tribes' relationship with the federal government and with laws and policies at the federal level were changing and, and reshaping. And then eventually I started to notice there were a lot of books out there about tribes' relationships within, within their states, uh, between state-tribal relations. And then also, um, there were case studies out there about individual tribes' experiences in the casino economy. But, but more and more, I started to see um, these news newspaper articles and, and other kinds of, of media surrounding controversy, tribal controversy in the casino era, tribes fighting with one another over... Know, location or or the size of the casino that was going in or, what, or rights and responsibilities to a particular place and I and I became more and more interested in, in what's going on there and and is it as simple as um, tribes fighting over you know because they're because they're all greedy and want a lot of... Money, uh, and I knew that that, that it was much more complicated than the story that was being told. So I started to look at intertribal relations in the casino era, how tribes were, um, put into positions of tension and conflict with one another. Uh, usually there was a lot of external pressures and, and a long history that had to be understood in order to realize, like, how they had positioned themselves mm-hmm. in the casino era. Um, and, and so, yeah, my, book's, my book is really about that. It's about tribal relations, uh, putting tribes in conversation with one another. It's not really about casinos at all, mm-hmm. and it's really not about conflict either. It looks, it looks at the co- way that tribes' relations to one another are framed as conflict, but it actually like asks us to consider more complex, deeper, longer histories, stories. Uh, perceptions of the tribes as they read their own situations and come to this economy from both similar and quite complexly different circumstances. Mm
1: -hmm. So it's got a component of the media's portrayal of this as a a fight among the tribes but there's a a deeper backstory that you're digging into.
2: Yeah, I mean really like it looks at the settler colonial history Mm -hmm. and the way in which tribes have been Removed, relocated, um, uh, subjected to civilization and assimilation projects, influenced by being either closely um, located to settler communities or more remotely removed from them, and and how many treaties a particular tribe um, claims with with those treaties, lands, um, with the rights and responsibilities they have to those those lands, how um, during the 1800s, when those treaties are being made, that boundaries sometimes are a little bit like there might be some different perceptions about where the boundary lines are, and so sometimes there's like competing claims, but really this has been created by the pressures and tensions um, and violences uh, that tribes are working to survive through, yeah. right? And now we have these complicated, sometimes contradictory, Policies and laws and and social expectations that um, we're working to mediate and negotiate, and that can um, position tribes like tribes as like a, a, a national entity, you know, in in particular ways that sometimes bring them into um, seemingly having conflict with one mm-hmm. another.
0: Right. Yeah, I can imagine that location. Uh, Is is of huge importance, uh, uh, especially when it comes to the question of casino uh, economy. Because uh, the closer to a major population center you are, the more likely that venture is going to win, uh, be be an economic success. And uh, so, how does that play? Because I mean, there are there of course tribes that are far away from major population Mm -hmm. centers. How does that play into that equation? That was one of
2: the the most I think most interesting things about the research was actually like what is a benefit, what is a benefit to a particular tribe. And there's a period of time where being more remotely located away from like the pop major population of mm-hmm. US like citizens actually is beneficial. The tribes who had um, reservations that they had reserved through their treaties were actually protected in some ways against like um, encroachment not entirely but but there was less pressure for them to uh, cede more land or to um, uh, eventually in during the termination area they weren't as pressured to to, um, agree to termination or to public law 280 which is about like uh, giving jurisdiction to the state over tribal lands and and so, in a way, the tri- tribes that uh, were more remote sometimes were able to more successfully defend their mm-hmm. land, uh, keep certain cultural practices intact, um, have an identity that that was solidly based on like their sovereignty. Whereas tribes that were located closer to popular urban centers. Uh, were under a lot of pressure and they were constantly being um, encroached on there was a lot more maybe intermarriage with folks who were Mm non-native just by the close proximity and so so the culture was under pressure the land was under pressure Um, kind of the stress of both federal state uh, practices and the settler society that lived close by were all there creating tensions at all times and (laughs) and so it was more likely that land would be would be taken by executive order or um land would be sort of just encroached on a little bit more and it would be harder to defend it um or later public law 280 the transferring of this like Um, legal jurisdiction over tribal lands and then termination which severed the government-to-government relationship with a lot of tribes in Western Oregon Mm. um, and the federal government and when you sever that when you you, it was unilaterally severed even though there are some folks who say that there was some discussion and maybe there were votes but it's all very um, unclear that there was a consent
1: Mm.
2: to termination by most of those Western Oregon tribes Uh, you know they're they're experiencing a lot of ruptures that the that tribes who are living more remotely you know maybe are are a little bit protected from now fast forward to post 1988 after the Indian gaming regulatory act is passed and tribes begin to say oh well we can we can get involved in this e- this economy often very reluctantly you know it's not it's not that native people were thinking that casinos would just be the best
1: they were away possible this <laughs> to happen.
2: You know, I I think that we have in our in our cultures, a lot of tribal cultures, there's gaming, people played games, did gambling. It wasn't a foreign idea. Mm-hmm. But the sort of high stakes casinos were really mm-hmm. crafted because of the way in which tribes had to negotiate, like the Supreme Court rulings and and the congressional acts and so um, they they a lot of tribes were asked, would you like to go into you know gaming and maybe we can support you in that maybe you can become economically self uh, sufficient, but it wasn't something that, many, many tribal people felt very comfortable with at first.
0: uh, Uh, It also involved significant investment from outside forces, and that always creates a certain imbalance. Mm -hmm. Because I remember that when we talked about the Foxwood Casino in Connecticut, that was big Mm -hmm. money coming from the outside. And so that creates all kinds of tension as to who's calling the shots. And those kinds of relationships um, created perceptions that then
2: sort of infest... um, infuse the conversation here as well. although many, many of the tribes here I think did go through self-funding, like mm-hmm. finding ways to, 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 to fund themselves and not to be involved in sort of tricky or, or uncomfortable alliances mm-hmm. <laughs> with, 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 um, with lenders or with investors. Uh, so so you get past that period of time, 1995 here in Oregon, and the tribes that are located closest to Portland, Salem,
1: mm-hmm.
2: automa- all of a sudden have uh, an advantage with their casinos because they just are closer to a population of mm-hmm. people who could be their um, customers. And those tribes that are located in more remote areas all, all of a sudden are at a disadvantage potentially because they're they're further away, um, and maybe they have a destination location for, for the most part in Oregon, that's not the case. Um,
1: so well, what were some of the intertribal issues that came up? Location, proximity to well, the population main, centers? The uh, main
2: issue that <clears throat> sort of centers the story that that I tell in the book is a geographical location in the middle of the Casc- uh, Columbia River, mm-hmm. uh, a place that's been known as Cascade Falls or Cascade Rapids. And it's a it's a location that is um, talked about in two treaties uh, from Oregon tribes. And both the Confederated Tribes of Warm Springs and the Confederated Tribes of Grand Ronde each claim a treaty that has that point mm. as one of the boundaries of their ceded lands right? But it comes up right next to each other, right? Because in the, I think it's in the Grand Ronde Tribes Treaty, it's the most, it's one of the most northern eastern points. And on the Warm Springs Treaty, it's one of the most northern western points. And so, so where exactly that point is in the stretch of rapids Mm -hmm. has been debated. Uh, contested mm-hmm. uh, each tribe has a story a, a point of view on why they have rights there uh, for Warm Springs the point of view is that they've never had, they never were terminated that they have had their treaties, their treaty uh, consistently recognized that it has been upheld in many legal uh, cases, it has been uh, used successfully to defend and protect, and to re- continue certain relationships to the Columbia River, and so they they point out that you know there's there's um, a number of of evidences that show that relationship and show that that relationship's never been uh, severed or given up or or not recognized by through that government to government relationship with the federal government and also the state. Um, Grand Ronde also has makes claims there because of one of their, uh, they actually have several treaties that they, they claim. Uh, and so when they think about their ceded land territory, it can go all the way up into Southern Washington and Northern California and Columbia River to the coast. Um, and it overlaps with sometimes other tribes in oregon's treaty claims too which always causes some tension uh but but part of the reason for that is because it kind of imagine this chaotic moment in in history during the removal and relocation reservation era um i think i mean right now in our in our country i'm seeing images of families being split apart and separated and sent in different directions, never to maybe see one another again. And I think that there was some some of that going on at the time. It was a very, I, I would imagine a scary time, difficult, um, exhausting, uh, saddening time when people were being really forced from their homes and and subjected to... Um, uncertainty and, and high levels of stress and so there's a point where some people who could have been removed from like a similar area to more than one contemporary tribal community right and so there's relationships there that are difficult sometimes to, to sort of like who so so if there was a treaty signer on one treaty and that that family ends up being part of, like, the confederated tribes of Grand Ronde in the long run. So d- does that yeah, now right. mean that mm-hmm. the Grand Ronde has claims to that particular oh, treaty, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Even if that person is also a Chinook or a Twadlala or a Wasco person, and there are also Wascos and, and Chinooks in the Warm Springs tribe. So I think that, like, it gets, it gets complicated. Mm-hmm. Now, there are Native uh, politicians and leaders who feel very clear about these things that, like, you know, uh, the casino that is comes up for dispute in the book, which is the um, uh, Bridge of the Gods casino mm-hmm. that Warm Springs proposes down at Cascade Locks along the Columbia River. Where, where exactly is that casino located? Is it located on the ceded lands of the Warm Springs um. or is it is it located on the ceded lands of the Grand Ronde. Now, Warm Springs has a lot more legal precedent to, mm. to defend their position, but but Grand Ronde says, hey, we were we were constantly under pressure. We were dealing with the mere survival of our community for a very long time. We eventually were terminated and scattered and we didn't have presence. in in some ways to to show up at Mm -hmm. these legal proceedings or to have a, a, you know, physical evidence to prove our perspective, now we are healthier, now we have started to regain some sense of our, um, you know, our footing, we want to have our relationship to these places restored, which is a totally understandable perspective Mm -hmm. too
0: in case you're just tuning in you are listening to literary ashland our guest today is dr brooke collie our uh, director of native american studies and author of her book the power of telling
1: yeah power in the telling right? power in, in the, the telling so university <coughs> of washington press just uh-huh. published mm-hmm. this year yeah. okay.
0: uh, can i uh, i'm i'm interested in in dealing with this question of how disputes are handled is there a way in which the dispute you just mentioned between Grand Ronde and, and Warm Springs... I mean, our Western notion of dispute means lawyers, usually. There are lawyers, uh, yes. I presume there are because the federal <laughs> government and everybody else yeah. is involved. But are there other methods of dispute settlement? This is an
2: interesting question, and one that I don't think... I, mean, I talk about, I suggest some things, mm-hmm. I point out some ways that Uh, the folks who I interviewed kind of visioned the possibilities for dispute resolution but one of the things is is like pre-colonial era we had our own types of dispute resolution we had disputes of course native people communities didn't always get along all of the time but there were protocols there were ways in which we engaged one another I come over to your place I offer you some sort of Gift acknowledging like your rights, and then we come and we talk about like our issues, or we meet at a communal place, one that's not necessarily owned by any of the communities, but like we share it, and then uh, you know meet with one another and, and come into council and figure out what what to do about the, the the issues that are before us. Now with the treaty making time, in many many treaties, there's a there's language there that says that any conflict between tribes has to be. Uh, negotiated or, or mediated by the federal government, so all of a sudden the United States federal government is the arbitrator of disputes between Native people, and so federally recognized tribes today are often going through a process of um, you know meeting with the Secretary of the Interior, with the governor, you know, and then also using um, legal proceedings, courts, and the like to settle disputes, and um, it's very much like Walter Echohawk, who is the author of In the Courts of the Conqueror, would say that it's a very much like the fox guarding the hen house. You know, it's putting in charge of the whole, the whole process, the very system that has undermined our capacities to fully govern as sovereign peoples right. and has been destructive to our communities and cultures. And so one of the beautiful things that came out of so many of the Folks I interviewed was this desire to, to do things in uh, what what some people, fe- what the old timers would say, like you know Indian Indian first or mm-hmm. keep our keep us in mind, you know take care, t- take care of each other, clearly recognizing each other's sovereignty and difference, right? Not not trying to erase or pretend there aren't differences between these various tribal communities, but also understanding how Native peoples have been really um mistreated and, and uh experienced great violences at the hands of a settler society and that settler law, that settler policy is not the appropriate approach to dealing with intertribal, you know, tensions or disagreements or conflict, if you will. And so um there actually are a number of different like tribal uh frameworks for talking about uh about these kinds of uh conflict resolution uh and and they come from different cultures i mean there's there's uh various ideas of of sharing space and gathering across difference even like this um, idea or theory of like the kitchen table like we can sit at the kitchen table we can recognize one another we can we can share in sustenance we can even disagree even Rigorously disagree and and not damage one another. See here's the thing is that some of the strategies uh, that tribes are uh, Involved in and not just here in Oregon, but across the country actually might seem like they're getting us somewhere in the short term But in the long term they actually erode our sovereignty Mm -hmm. right they erode our ability to not just be quasi or govern or uh, nations within a nation, but truly sovereign people Mm -hmm because we are adhering to the practices and the, and the protocols of the settler society rather than our own. Just become another lawyered up uh, group. Yeah, and I mean, I'll, you know, I'll say this about the lawyers of, of the tribes I know. They're, they're people who love these communities, you know. We're, we're, there are, they're trusted folks, and they're trying to do their best. And I think that's true of the leadership. That's true of everybody involved, even mm-hmm. when they're cast as, you know, negatively sometimes by the press as they're trying to do what's best within, the, within the, the framework that they have to work with, within the limitations that they have grown to know exist, you know, to, to serve their communities and to find ways to provide infrastructure, uh, education, healthcare, all of these services that a nation is supposed to, you know, in theory, give its people. And so they're small nations, but they're nations, you know, and, and that takes a lot to rebuild infrastructure when every 10 15 20 years a new policy or law comes in to you know kick the legs out from under you and you have to start again yeah, or you that... have to change the change direction or understand the rules differently
1: and I had never really thought about the the treaties as being the sort of original arbitration clause because those are those are sort of in the in the news now with everybody's concerned about the social media and contract arbitration clauses but this is sort of the progenitor for that but and i really like
2: i really do appreciate the treaties the treaties have been used for so many in so many good ways to defend and protect mm-hmm. and to resist and and so i think tribes are smart they have learned strategies they have figured out ways to talk the lingo and to get heard but at the same time those same tools can also reproduce uh, certain colonial logics mm-hmm. that might that we might want to think about more deeply You know, this isn't a book that's telling anybody what the right path is. It's a book that's asking folks to consider Each other and long-term goals of self-determination
1: Well, I, I think we're running into our last five minutes or so so I was going to ask if you can um Recommend some other must-read books in native oh, yeah. studies besides power in the telling.
2: Yeah, there's actually, actually a, a, a number of really wonderful books that have recently uh, Been published. There's a book called we are dancing for you by Hupa scholar Kutcher Risling Baldy, who I would highly recommend you do an interview with mm-hmm. and uh, Ariel Tumbaga wrote a book called Yaki identity, All right and uh, there's I actually have a big stack of new Native Studies books with me right now. I think this one sounds interesting. I haven't read it yet, but it's called Hip Hop Beats, Indigenous Rhymes by Kyle Mays. Well, that, that really
1: interesting there. <laughs>
2: but there's so many amazing uh, Indigenous scholars, Indigenous and Allied scholars doing good work, thinking critically about uh, the health and wellness of Indigenous peoples and, and really centering the voices of those communities. Um, in the discussion. So it's an exciting time for Native American Studies.
0: What are your plans in terms of future research and writing projects?
2: Yes, so at Southern Oregon University I have been working with a class for the last three years. It's called Queer Indigenous Studies. We put on the Queer Indigenous Gathering every year. Mm -hmm. We bring uh, world-class speakers, poets, activists, artists to come and participate in this event and so my plan is to work on an edited volume that invites those those participants to um, each author or contribute to a chapter and it will be within that uh, queer indigenous studies you know genre and but but really mixed media and hopefully involving a lot of my students in the process so i think it will be um, a lot of fun and be really important interesting vital scholarship. And, and
1: that's every April you've been doing that?
0: It's, in, it's in, in March. March? Okay. Mm-hmm. So. That sounds like a great project indeed. Well, that about wraps it up for our uh, session of Literary After Thanks, Brooke, for Thank you. being with it's us. Great here. to have you here. Great to have it's you great here. talking with you guys. And uh, we'll be back on the fourth Friday in July. Until then, good words to you. Bye. Bye, everybody.